The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi everyone, today we're going to talk about hydrogen. In the run-up to this interview, I asked a few people around the office, not being of analysts, what they thought of when I said hydrogen. A few answers came back. Okay, the first was the Hindenburg. So will the hydrogen blow up? Do I really want it in my car? Next is, how do you make it? I've heard about this word electrolysis, but really, what is it? How do you make this stuff? And finally, isn't it going to leak? I mean, it's a really tiny molecule. Today, we're going to kick off the discussion about hydrogen with some of the basics and some talk of the economics. We'll be joined by Kobad Bevnagri, who heads up special projects for PNF, and Martin Tengler, who wrote the report we'll discuss today, Hydrogen, the Economics of Storage. BNF users can get this report on bnf.com, the BNF mobile app, or on Terminal at BNF Go. But before we get into the discussion with Kobad and Martin, I thought we'd have Albert Chung, Global Head of Research for BNF, ease us into the topic. And just real quick, please note that BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Mark Taylor, here with Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF Podcast. Albert, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Can you give us a little bit of background on why BNF has started covering hydrogen now? Well, the history of BNF and hydrogen actually goes back a long way, because when NEF was founded back in 2004, it was founded as a hydrogen fuel cells you know, research and data gathering shop. Um, and since then, we've kind of dipped in and out of it. Probably every, every three or four years, we've gone into it, done a deep dive, and said, oh, it's probably three or four years away. I think what's different now is that um, the number of countries and companies that are getting quite serious about investing into the technology and, de- and deploying you know, uh, r- real projects and pilot projects and so on, um, from the oil and gas companies and beyond. And I think things are changing a bit in terms of the cost outlook as well. I remember, I think it was back in 2011-12, um, in my team at the time, we, we actually did take a look at fuel cell vehicles and basically concluded way too expensive, going to take years to bring costs down. But... Now, when we look at, you know, particularly the, the electrolysis and hydrogen production piece, it seems like costs have come down quite a lot. Um, so, we, you know, we feel like it's definitely worth another look. So, okay, so one part of it is a cost story, but why are, are companies investing in it because it's a cost story? Or are they seeing some other benefit to developing this technology further? Yeah, good question. Um, again, if I, if I rewind a few years, I think everyone was really focused on passenger vehicles and including us, you know, that's why we looked at it as well. Um, I think what we've realized now is with cheap renewables and cheap batteries, there are solutions now in place for, you know, certain chunks of the emissions pie where hi- hydrogen's kind of been priced out of the, of the competition. But now there's kind of more serious discussions about decarbonizing the rest of the economy. So things like long-haul trucking, mm-hmm. things like steel production, ammonia production, really difficult sectors that, where, frankly, you know, renewables and batteries probably won't make the cut. And there you're really talking about um, alternative clean fuels, you know, molecules rather than electrons. And that's where hydrogen comes in. Now, hydrogen's not the only solution. Um, there's things like CCUS that we're going to look at as well. But I, I think in terms of why companies are starting to look at it more seriously, I think they see the momentum towards decarbonization of these trickier sectors. So besides the cost coming down, they see it as, an, as an, a growth opportunity? Yeah, I think so. It, it's a growth opportunity. And especially if you think about the competencies of some of the companies that are investing, their, their competencies are around fuels and you know fuels production, fuels 
management and, and storage and transportation and fuels provision um, and hydrogen as well as you know uh, potentially other kind of renewable fuels are a pathway to a, to an energy transition to low carbon that, that maintains a major role for, for fuels. Um, so yeah, it's certainly an opportunity for those companies. Can you tell us a little bit of how it works? So I said in the intro, you know, I've heard of this term electrolysis, but what is that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Electrolysis essentially is uh, when you uh, split water um, and produce hydrogen. So you do it by uh, putting power in um, and, and water in and you get hydrogen out. So it's pretty straightforward. It's a bit like a reverse fuel cell. So fuel cell, you put hydrogen in, you get power out. Electrolysis is the other way around. Now, the, the great thing about electrolysis is if you do it, using renewable power as the input, then you have renewable hydrogen, you have carbon-free hydrogen on the back mm. end of it, um, which is different from the traditional ways of producing hydrogen. So basically all the hydrogen in the world today is produced by steam methane reformation, which is not zero carbon. Um, so if you if you use hydrogen in a process today, chances are it's not clean hydrogen. Um, so, so you need to either have electrolysis from renewables or steam methane reformation with uh, carbon capture in future to, to get to clean hydrogen. Okay, thanks for joining us, Albert. Thank you, Mark. I think now we're going to jump in with the discussion with Dana and Martin and Kobad. Hi, Martin. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Dana. And hi, Kobad. Welcome. Hi, Dana. Good to be here. When you think about the future of hydrogen, do you think about it in terms of fossil fuels with CCS as being the dominant source of H2, or is it renewables with an electrolyzer? Sub-question, are the players that are the main players now in making H2... Are those going to be the main players going forward? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, And that's one of the things we're trying to figure out. Is this going to be a fossil fuels plus CCS story right. or is this going to be a renewable power story? And um, in some ways, actually, it, it's a bit of a false question because th the first part is, is hydrogen going to um, become that fuel for a, for a clean economy? Because if it is, it's going to play such a massive role and you're going to need to have so much supply of hydrogen that it's almost unquestionable that you'll need both. Mm. You'll need it to come from fossil fuels. You'll need it to come from renewables. Different countries have different resources. Countries with a lot of gas are going to want to keep doing it from gas. Um, countries which are fossil fuel poor uh, but, but have great wind or solar resources are obviously going to do it from renewables. So it, there will be to some extent a horses for courses approach. But we are trying to get to the bottom of that. The companies, that's also a, a, an, an interesting thing that we'll have to see how it goes, but it's, it's some of the, the main actors that are sort of pushing the hydrogen barrow, if you will, are the big producers, the current, the chemical giants um, who already have skin in the game and would love for that game to get bigger. Diving into the topic of this note specifically, which is storage and the economics around storage. The storage of hydrogen has a lot to do with factors that are beyond anyone's control. Physically, what is the geology of that space? So, Martin, can you actually explain a little bit what the ideal scenario is and what maybe some of the less preferable ones are and why? You can think of storing hydrogen, again, similar to storing natural gas. The easiest way today to store natural gas at scale is to put it in a depleted natural gas field. That's the cheapest way to store a very large volume of uh, natural gas for a long period of time. You cannot necessarily do that with hydrogen as easily because you might end up with that hydrogen being contaminated by that residual natural gas. So you're going to have to use something else. 
And the most, um, the, the best choice when it comes to cost and the purity of hydrogen that comes out of that uh, storage is salt caverns. And salt caverns are large cavities in the ground that we can make in the salt rock by leaching it, by pumping water in, taking it out, and what's left is a cavity into which we can pump natural gas or hydrogen or many other different substances. And the benefit there is that it keeps the natural gas very pure, uh, the, sorry, keep, keep the hydrogen very pure, and it's the cheapest way to store hydrogen at uh, scale. The problem, and I think you were alluding to this, is that you need salt deposits, deep salt deposits, in order to use salt caverns or to be able to mine them. And uh, not every country is lucky to have those. So we are seeing lots of uh, salt caverns and lots of salt deposits in North America, especially the Gulf Coast of the US, parts of Canada. We are seeing salt caverns or the opportunity to build them in many parts of Europe. But we are not seeing the opportunity for salt caverns in places like Japan or South Korea, which, by the way, are one of the two countries that are very, very interested in having or pursuing a hydrogen economy. So the natural question is, what are these countries going to do to store the hydrogen that they're going to need to power that hydrogen economy? Is this a case of, I mean, you hear US and Canada being just the lucky ones for those salt caverns again, right? It seems to be the case where you have fossil fuels, you know, you have the right geology for salt caverns as well. So they're going to be winners here as well? Yes. So it depends on the, on the geology. And the geology of salt caverns is very much linked, or geology of salt deposits is very much linked to the geology of oil because the salt tends to trap oil. So any place with large oil deposits that includes, for example, the Middle East, has good potential for building salt caverns. Any place that does not have um, good so oil deposits is uh, unlikely to be lucky when it comes to salt caverns. How big a piece of the pie, from an economic standpoint, is the storage cost in this game? Storage costs are very, very important, or could be very, very important, depending on your location and depending for how long and for what purpose you are storing that uh, hydrogen. But we have seen that the cost of producing hydrogen today from fossil fuels are anywhere between a dollar or $2 per kilogram of hydrogen. If you're going to store that gas in a salt cavern, you might add another 23, 25 cents for storing that gas. If you are not lucky enough to have salt caverns, you might be paying three times that much. And uh, that means the one or two dollars is going to become $1.75 to $2.75. So you're almost doubling your cost of hydrogen. So on an LCOE basis, it's pretty far behind pretty much anything else, right? So hydrogen will always cost more than fossil fuels. Particularly, always. Or always, particularly at, at the cheap end. And the reason for that is physics. Hydrogen has to be produced from something. Fossil fuels can be very cheap because uh, they exist in their natural state. So if you can get it out easily, it can be produced e uh, cheaply. Hydrogen has to be made either from an existing hydrocarbon, the hydrogen stripped out from the carbon, or from water, in which case you need energy to split the oxygen and the hydrogen. So because you have to produce it from something else, it's always going to be more expensive than what that original source of the energy was. Let's pivot a little bit to the companies that are looking to bring this technology forward. Who are the players? Are they big? Are they little? 
So there is a, a whole host of really quite big companies. Um, many of them are the sorts of big comp- companies that you don't hear about in your day-to-day life because they are behind-the-scenes chemical giants. Players like uh, Air Liquide, who make a lot of industrial gases, like um, Martin can speak to some of the Japanese ones. Players like uh, Kawasaki Heavy and uh, Iwatani, which are very interested in getting a liquid hydrogen supply chain and a liquid hydrogen market off the ground. You've got your, your industrial conglomerates, uh, the, the Siemenses of the world, uh, uh, the, the, the Tees and Krups, um, who make a lot of uh, heavy machinery and, and, and things that plants that make other things. Uh, and then, of course, you've got your big oil and gas companies who are now very interested in the prospect. So the, the BPs of the world, the, sh- the Shells, the Totals, the Woodsides, uh, they're all the uh, sort of you know, existing oil and gas giants that have started hydrogen business units, they're funding pilot projects, uh, and they're investigating the technology to prepare for a low-carbon future. What is the general perception around the safety of hydrogen? Because it conjures up this view of that exploding Zeppelin. Uh, And I think about that sometimes when I see the occasional but not frequent hydrogen vehicle driving around. That's right. So a lot of focus groups discussing the issue of hydrogen safety. If you look at the word cloud, it includes things like bomb and <laughs> and explosion. So safety is always identified in, in the national roadmaps that countries you know, at, the, at the forefront of, of, of this um, push and the exploration of the potential of hydrogen. Safety is always one of the key things that they are looking at. I imagine along with leakage and corrosion, is that true or no? So that, that those play into the safety and the compatibility okay. issues of hydrogen. But um, certainly, so that the safety issue actually spans a whole bunch of um, areas. So for one, the usage of and production of hydrogen is currently really tightly regulated. There's a lot of safety codes. There's a lot of prohibitions on where you can use hydrogen, on when you can use hydrogen, on how you store it, on how you uh, handle it. So, for instance, in China, liquid hydrogen is um, illegal to possess or to make because it is considered a rocket fuel, which it is. The space shuttle, Apollo 11, they were all powered by liquid hydrogen. Um, Likewise, there's lots and lots of safety codes on and often prohibitions on putting hydrogen into pipelines because hydrogen can make pipelines weak and cause them to rupture. But you can do it in in smaller percentages. Um, the latest science is saying 5 to 20%. You can blend and without a problem. But to be on the safe side in, the, in years gone by, these hydrogen has often be, been prohibited. There's, there's a whole bunch of other safety concerns, uh, concerns about um, and, and issues of social acceptability, which will have to be worked through, um, which is all a key part of the consideration of whether hydrogen can play the role that some people uh, hope it will. So how do you see hydrogen coming into, let's say, my daily life, right? Will it come into play practically by me buying a hydrogen fuel cell car or will it be more in industrial processes that I don't see? That's right. Yeah. So one of the beauties about hydrogen actually is that um, it can be used almost everywhere and in almost every major industry and sector. Uh, it it could be the natural gas of the future and that it's this you know ubiquitously used uh, fuel that 
um, you know, people who just need energy end up using it and buying it. So um, hydrogen could be the fuel that powers your vehicle, or the battery electric vehicles are definitely winning that race for the moment. Um, it could be the fuel that is going into the manufacturing, it will, is, is ending up somehow powering your aeroplane. It could be the fuel that is uh, allowing steel to be made and for the chairs we sit on. Um, it can also be the fuel which ends up producing uh, the fertilizers which make our tomatoes nice and red. Um, it, it can permeate all different parts of the economy, so it could be incredibly useful. It, it can also, as Cobalt has already mentioned, be blended with natural gas into existing natural gas pipelines, about 5 to 20% concentrations, depending on the pipeline, depending on the regulations. And it could then end up heating your home, or you could cook your dinner with a partly hydrogen gas mix. So the storage part has to be built from scratch, but the transportation through existing pipelines can mean we could use existing infrastructure, so that could actually help drive it towards economic viability sooner. That is one way in which we think uh, that uh, hydrogen could start taking off, is if a government, for example, mandates that 5% of the volume in a natural gas pipeline at any given time must be hydrogen. And uh, if that happens, that creates large demand for hydrogen, which would then help reduce the costs of uh, producing the hydrogen. So hydrogen can be used uh, in our existing gas pipes to a point. D depending on what material those gas networks are made of, um, they have you know, varying levels of compatibility or safety with hydrogen. So if, if you have a, a more modern network of uh, polyurethane-based pipes which are common when um, in, in, in new cities and new, new population centers and also where there's been a deep retrofit or replacement, then hydrogen can, can be uh, piped through there up to 100% you know, concentration with, with a little bit of um, work done on making sure you, it's, it's sealed. Of course, it, you'd also have to adjust the appliances uh, or buy new appliances to burn that hydrogen. That, that's right. So just in the way that cities and towns and countries switched from towns gas uh, back in the 60s, 70s and 80s to natural gas, a similar type of switchover will be required in order to start to use large high blends of hydrogen. In fact, towns gas is a blend of hydrogen and carbon monoxide. So we used to have 40% hydrogen running under the streets of London under the streets of Sydney, of Tokyo, etc. So um, that comes back to the point that the idea of hydrogen as a fuel is actually not an old, not a new one. It's an old one, and it's ebbed and flowed over the years, and had you know various backers, and then it's fallen, fallen over. But this time may be different. Well, I am certainly interested in watching this space because. You, you have sold me on the excitement of a potentially emissions-free future. So thank you very much for joining us today about kind of this new and exciting area in the, the spaces that we cover. Kobad, Martin, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you, Dana. 
Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.